Good day, good morning, good afternoon. It's John Summers, the motoring historian, with his erstwhile school friend, Mark Gammy. How you doing, Mark? Pretty good, dude. How are you? All right. All right. You know, just breaking down that third wall in the way that we normally like to do. You and I have just spent two hours trying to line this up because we've got a new puppy and I'm a kind of shit puppy dad, if the truth well, we is. we haven't, in done. the sense that you and I don't have one. You have one in the royal we. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, as in my family. Yeah. And the royal we would be applicable because the dog is a corgi, isn't it? Which is, yeah, I, which true. I know is, as an Englishman living in California is faintly fucking ridiculous. But, you know, I'm a ridiculous kind of, of person. And in fact, in fact, right, that has turned out to be the perfect segue for the way that I was going to start our, our call today. Um, and it was with this, that... Uh, my wife tells a story about how I was costing her money before we even met. Do you know this story? I may have heard it. I can't recall it off cover. You, you may. Well, you 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 will remember my side of it. You won't remember her side of it. So you you remember that that we were both offered a job in California with this student travel company mm -hmm. in the summer of I think two thousand and four or two thousand five. One of those two, anyway. Well, there was a training course that began uh, at the beginning of, of July. And they said to me, if you work really hard on your visa stuff and go really fast, you might be able to get, you know, the paperwork in on time. And I was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> Thinking, really want to spend a month where I know I've got a job and I'm going to be earning again. Really want to spend a month in my flat in Ealing using my Jigsaw to go and explore Neolithic sites of Southern England, right? Because mm -hmm. you could, so what I would, uh, so what I wanted to do was, what I did was, was uh, I, I slow pedaled the paperwork and uh, every morning or every other morning, really, it probably wasn't every morning, but a lot of the time I got up and I would look on, you know, you know how it is. You look on the map, you see the brown sites, whichever Neolithic site wasn't there. I'd just look for a nearby town and then I'd, I'd get up and be out of London and, um, I, and uh, you know, at the Neolithic site as the dog walkers were, were there. And then I'd have like a, a, a lardy cholesterol breakfast um, at a transport cafe or something and then roll back up to town. Well, the story is, is this, that I'm rolling back up to town one day I'm in the right-hand lane of the M4, that sort of, you know, Newbury, Swindon kind of road, right your neck of the woods now. I'm in the right-hand lane, rolling along about 90. And guy comes up on my left-hand side on a Jigsaw and stopped for a minute and then took off. And I did that, and it was the first time I'd ever done that, where you meet somebody on the road and you just take off after them and 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 ride with them and and i remember two things about that ride the first one was that there was a bmw 740 in the right hand lane and it was there for ages and ages and ages and wouldn't move aside 
And when it eventually moved aside, he pulled up alongside and then kicked the door and put a dent in the door, in the rear, in the rear door. Where the freeway, where the motorway goes, where the M4 goes under the M25, you know, often on, if you drive in West into London, you know, often on that piece of road where you're, you're on the M4, but the M25 traffic's got off, but the M25 traffic hasn't yet got on. There's that little section under the mm-hmm. 150 mile an hour on my 600, and he was leaving me for dead. Right? I was like, I'm going to drop off him when we come to the North Circular, because I was living in Ealing at the time. But he came off at the North Circular as well. And we got through Chiswick, and at the first set of traffic lights, like as we were, you know, on the way around the North Circular, I can't remember I don't know exactly which, you know, we weren't yet at, at Ealing, but we were, we, were, we were on the way there. I rolled up alongside him at the light, and he put up the visor, and his eyes were ice blue, and he was our age now, like 50 plus. And he said, I just picked it up at the dealership. Fucking awesome. Visor down, the lights changed and he had it away. And that was the whole end of the end of the experience. And and I'm, oh man, it, it's just the reason why Suzuki GS6Rs are, are different, right? I'm get my food. Two seconds. So, you know, why was that costing Dana money? Oh, bollocks. Yeah, as usual, the story's totally disjointed and, and yeah. unfinished, isn't it? Why was that costing Dana money? Um, <laughs> this gold. The reason it was costing her money was when they said, you got to rush to get on the July training course. She did. She got her dad to like pay for an extra, but get pay for the rent and moved out here early. So the plane flight was expensive, but she also paid for a month's rent, or her dad paid for a month's rent in in the apartment. Which they then, which when she arrived, they were then like, "Oh, we're delaying the training course." And the reason that they delayed the training course was me because I had not been asked to get my visa in on time. Yeah, yeah, I can believe that. That, that has the air of authenticity to it. It's God's honest truth. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't doubting you. I mean, there's no question about it. that nowadays um our episodes are broken up by music where mm. once there just used to be a choppy edit now we have like 
So the episode at that last one, episode 14 that we did with with Greep and the Vans. Yeah. Um, that one um, I did all with Slayer. You remember mm-hmm. this time I thought I would do all German power metal. Actually. I've even planned out what I'm going to do. So we've got Warlock mostly yeah. for this episode. Then with with just a little bit of a Scorpion's deep cut and a little bit of Scanner to uh to to finish up but just on the theme of the german of the german power metal what what are your thoughts on german power metal it's running wild german power metal i'm pretty sure it is yeah it is but they're getting their own episode i'm I'm a bit offended that you haven't included any running wild they're getting their own episode they deserve their own episode yeah yeah no i I can dig it i mean dude like hypertrace is a cracking album um no i warlock burning the witches etc i got a lot of time for um one of the best bands that for a long time the only for me at least decent heavy metal band with a female vocalist not that i had any particular prejudice against female vocalists but she did a really good job i can't remember what the chick's name was um doro pesh there you go uh, but yeah i quite agree lita for no good in comparison no. i mean there are, I, I there like are some decent ones now um, i like I'm her as a person and all of that but doro truly yeah truly rocked and and hmm. the samples that we've played here um, perfectly illustrate the way that her vocals are like uh, like Tom Araya's. It's like a third lead guitar. Yeah, she had proper range, didn't she? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, but but the, and the, the but whoever wrote the guitar riffs, my yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, pretty sick, pretty sick. Um, no, I got a lot of time for the Germans. Um, what I also find it quite amusing about the Germans, and it's none, none of their fault, is that quite often the lyrics that are presumably written in German. Um, Oh, well, maybe written in English then, but, but German, their English is certainly be better than my German. Um, end up sounding just a little bit the wrong side of the cakey cheesy. Um, whereas if they perhaps been written by a native speaker, they would still sound, you know, heavy metal, but perhaps not quite as like you know. Um, well, some of the stuff off Running Wild's albums when they're talking about pirates and stuff. Just yeah. a little bit it, too. It, it, it has the feeling of fantasy literature written by a twelve-year-old, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. and does. and uh, um, yeah. There's uh, there's a, a warlock track, "Hateful Guy," which I always think is uh, um, has has that kind of. It has it, it has the feeling of a non-mother tongue speaker about it, but but mm-hmm. I feel like I think they wrote the songs in English, and I, I think that that you know it was. The way that band, so many heavy metal bands talk about the heavy metal as if it's like an independent entity that has a life force of its own, like a yeah. sort of country that we're, uh, we're, we, you know, that we're uh, citizens of, if you, if, if you like. Um, Cakey lyrics. Yeah, and the fact that if it's not mother tongue, um, it has. Uh, look, I I feel like a lot of these heavy metal bands they they wanted to write something similar to what Dio was writing, but it ends up coming across as you know twelve year old fantasy uh, literature. Yeah, which is a segue for us to plug our book again, isn't it? The Chronicles of Halvar and Clarence by J D Gammy. Yeah. My word, get That's to right. Amazon and buy it straight away if you have not already and write us a review, even if it's crap. Even if you hated us, write a review.
Mark, on the subject of even if you hated us, write a review. Um, at the end of last year, I did that International Motor Racing Research Center conference. I, I always do that. Um, they streamed it um, for the first time. Well, not actually for the first time, for the second time, but but we won't get, let's not get into the details of, uh, of that exactly. It, it was, you had a chance to, to participate in it remotely. Uh, what were your thoughts? Um, to be honest, I listened to about 10 minutes of your piece and I can't remember what happened, but I haven't gone back to it. I've saved the link. Um, I think I'm, the um, my feedback was therefore rather um, cursory and more to do with, it felt a bit like, my yeah, a bit harsh, but I felt you probably needed to be a bit more you reading it rather than sounding like you were reading it, if you know what I mean. Um, oh, in yeah. The, yeah um, yeah the, the the tech sales guy in in you and, and in dana rebels against the presentation style the reality is in those kind of events if you're going to deliver all the information you've only got two thousand words right so you need so the and the best way to, I've, I've tried doing presentations right the kind of slideshow powerpointy kind of thing that we would that you're taught to do as a like a or at least i was taught to do as a tech sales guy 20 years ago the challenge with with that as a communication method is that you um is, is that you don't use the two thousand words as well as you could have done i know i'm not suggesting you shouldn't have read it out i'm suggesting you should have performed reading it out well i should have i should have read as if i was on stage delivering a shakespearean play not quite that cakey but just a little bit more a little bit more like this happened to be two thousands of words that you just thought of and you really believed in it, if you know what I mean. Rather than two thousands of words which you still you 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 carefully crafted and really believed in and now we're reading out. There's just a little bit I felt a little bit Yeah. You needed a bit more yeah, of an acting. The way that the way that historians deliver material is exactly that dry way. But you can't deny the fact that rhetoric's a skill. You can't deny the fact that um, an improved method of communication, in this case, improved rhetoric, would have made my presentation style more effective uh, than, than, than it was. It was minor minor criticism. I'm not like No, no, but I, I appreciate that because, and it actually ties up with exactly why I've been doing this pod rather than writing for the last year or 18 months because because the pod is is all about this business of of being able to communicate in the vernacular Um, something we touched on, I'm just like looking at my stupid agenda there. Um, something that we touched on before was, was the fact that, that you could, um, access the conference remotely. And I guess I wanted to make a wider point, um, about conferences, academic conferences and about how, 
the whole character of them is undergoing a, a transformation. This is actually directly related to that rhetoric style, is, is that pre-pandemic, if you wanted to go to the IMR, if you wanted to understand what was being talked about at the IMRRC, the only way to do it was to get on a plane and go, right? The same way was for, any, you know, the same true of any conference, right? Once we got, once, you know, the conference is streamed and once you can present it remotely, suddenly at that point, right, the physical conference sort of declines in importance, doesn't it, almost? Because the virtual conference, it becomes this thing where once upon a time there was a barrier to you participating at the IMRRC, because even if they accepted your paper, you weren't going to drop $3,000 on a trip there. Um, I mean, some people did, but you most, most, but whereas now anybody, any student, most historians are poor, but aren't they? It gives, a, it gives much more of a, of a reach. So I think that's, I think that's yeah. incredible and awesome, right? But you say, but the conference, it's all about the in-person and the networking. Yes, it is. So what an event like the IMRRC can be is both of those things. This year, because of family stuff, I couldn't go in person. Fine. I can't go in person. I still am participating and involved in the community by giving a paper, which uh, not the same as going right, would still be worthwhile getting on the plane to go, to make mingle with the people, to meet the new people, to be able to um, have in-depth conversations with people over dinner and over lunch. That's what you what you miss out on by, uh, you know, by, by not going. But I just want to underscore how what's really happened with this virtual thing and it's we're just at the beginning of the revolution is that the there is a place for the physical and the virtual and the future is going to have both and the exchange of information at these conferences is going to be so much better because the dude that can't move from his basement he can still do a presentation and those of us that want to put on the sharp suit and have got the money to fly we, we can do it and we can mingle and, you know, we'll see you at Pebble in a few weeks' time kind of thing, right? It, there's yeah. room for everybody. Yeah. I agreed, and I, I absolutely applaud that. I mean, I think the challenge is always that it doesn't always work that way in the sense that, um, you know, if you're battling against um, the tides of, well, post-pandemic people not answering their telephone, Kids not answering their telephone. Only if you, why don't you ask? Why didn't you text me if you wanted to speak to me? But I rang you. Well, no one calls people anymore. That sort of thing. And also the fact that I went to a couple of conferences online during the pandemic, um, IT related, obviously, um, where they had breakout rooms and like you had virtual stands and you could, people could come and see you. I mean, flat out, nobody did. Nobody did absolutely not at all people went to the sessions they wanted to go to and then didn't turn up or participate in any way in any shape other than yeah. that at yeah, all. because because now, the booth is... always was dropping traffic you always did only... yeah that's why you put it between the snacks and the auditorium <laughs> yeah whereas now they're at home and the moment what they had to do is over they're like fuck that off school run tv 
jerk off. Yeah, yeah. Someone else. Exactly. Go and have a shit, whatever you need to do. You're you know, not, you go, yeah, go and prioritize something by else. Vendor stands anymore. And everyone loses because the vendors lose because they don't get to speak to those people in that passing traffic. And the, and although they wouldn't like to admit it, they lose as well because what they also don't get then is a smattering in a Conan, I use the word deliberately, a smattering of, you know, other languages, you know, a smattering of, oh, I've just, I, I was catching, I was passing, I chatted to this geezer and he taught me about this, you know, disk to disk remote backup. I spoke to this other chap, he talked to me about the fact that there were other plugins my contact center that I can use for X, Y, and Z. Didn't even know that shit existed. You, you don't pick that up because you don't have to pass by the booths. You don't have to, oh yeah, I do want one of those squidgy throwaway toys they're giving away, so I'll give the guy five minutes. Well, damn, that was really interesting. I've got my IT director to meet him next week. That doesn't happen. So the people who sponsor the, the, uh, the conferences lose, the vendors lose, and the attendees lose because a lot of that organic stuff's gone. So um, I completely agree with you. I like the fact that it is a broader church because it can include more stuff. And because it's enthusiast based, one would hope therefore it has less of those mitigations, but just as a sort of from the other side of the fence, looking at it from a sort of pure business interaction pace, um, place, it can be the net, the end product can be diluted. Yeah. Which can be a bit of a shame. So it's, it's, I still think you haven't got choice. You've got to include it. Um, but it's, it's finding a good way for those people to interact properly, um, which is difficult with a remote audience. Yeah, um, I'm just brooding on the lessons that can be learned by contrasting a small unprofessional enthusiast event with your kind of professional corporate, you know, at the London Olympia kind of kind of event because I, yeah. I read the other day that the um jeep chrysler ram are not doing any more motor shows now that's a you know that is also because they're hurting for money at the moment right but also of all the you, you know it, it just what that speaks to is that this is just not an environment an auto show is just not an environment either to brand build or to sell cars anymore it's weird, isn't it? Because like I, I was listening to a 44 Teeth episode a while back where they were doing their uh, men read PDFs of all the stuff that was at Eichmer. And they used to go to Eichmer and it, they don't bother to go anymore because, and I, I mean, I wouldn't I paraphrase and I wouldn't want to put words in their mouth, but I think that, that my takeaway from what their explanation was, was that essentially because every bugger and his wife has got a YouTube channel where they are registered to go and stand in front of the bikes with a with a you know with a camera or a webcam on a stick or whatever and then do their own piece it's very difficult to get even in the sort of this sort of quote unquote downtime or when it's not being officially launched to get time in front of and to produce any content that's meaningfully diff different from thousands of vloggers out there who are producing their own stuff so they were like we might as well do that bring you what we can do for with better pictures talking over the top of it and yeah, yeah. no you don't Which get a picture exactly, of it that was exactly what we, that was exactly what we did with just go drive yeah. that was the idea with the just go drive yeah. reviews but why would we why would yeah, we spend think, ages shooting our own shitty footage when there's b-roll turns out every fucking half wit on youtube yeah. wants the shaky cam b-roll 
I could have been JM. Yeah. You could have been JM if you just done it sooner. I couldn't have been a ripoff of Jeremy Clarkson. I'm me. I don't want to be a ripoff of Jeremy no. Clarkson. How come YouTube is full of people who just ripped off Jeremy Clarkson? Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, maybe why I'm so cynical about Clarkson. I thought of this just recently. I was talking with somebody about Clarkson just recently. It's because Beavis and Butthead, Wilman and Clarkson, Gammy and Summers, right? Wilman and Clarkson went to Repton together and liked cars. They were mates who went to school together who liked cars, who later in life washed up at the BBC together and were like, oh, and imagine if we had some budget, if we'd in our in our 30s, if you and me had had some budget and had had the, you know, Repton connections rather than the Devonport High School for Boys connections, you know, we could have done that kind of, we could have created that kind of content. I'm not saying, oh, I could have been Jamie Clarkson. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, oh, on the contrary, I'm ready for a new kind of automotive journalist. I don't want somebody who's a ripoff of Clarkson. What are these guys in America doing trying to rip off Top Gear and Clarkson? Like, just. I do. I completely agree. And I mean, like, I, I love the guys from 44 Teeth and I love them because they're authentically who they are. However, a lot of the stuff they do on BBB is a little bit too, like, lagers and lads and louts and stuff for me. I mean, and I understand that sells and it's hugely popular. And I think it's a genius move of them to then put an unedited, like, X-rated cut out at loads of cinemas up and down the UK, rent those cinemas out for a night and go straight to the audience like that. That's a very clever plan. And it certainly proved hugely successful for them last time. But it, it does get a little bit close to a lot of the reasons why I thought, oh, for good God, like this is on the BBC. This is fucking embarrassing. The, the sort of casual. Now, they don't do really the casual xenophobia in the same way as the, the, that um, Clarkson would do. Yeah, because it's 2023, not 2003. Correct. Um, but nonetheless, it is a little bit sort of trending and sort of that way. And I find those a little bit hard to watch. I think the the interesting stuff where they're talking about bikes and their genuine enthusiasm for bikes is hugely plays through, which is most of their stuff. Was. I know what I was going to say. Baron von Grumble, the early stuff that yeah. he, that um, Chris, can't remember his second name, did ride where he was riding up to London and that stuff right if you i don't want to you know i've i know what happened in his personal life right um when i first watched those baron von grumble stuff i loved it right because it was like the monologue in my own head right the, the and the key one and the one with the most views is the one where as he's coming up onto the m4 he's on his jigsaw he's been weaving out in and out of traffic it's rain you're stressed somebody's just tried to knock him off in a mercedes sedan and as he's merging there's a bloke riding with one of those shirts that says instead of police it looks like it says police but it says polite and he has this rampage like just just rant at the polite, right, at the just. Now, in that moment, right, then it's comedy genius and you're rolling around laughing, right? Then you realise what's happened to him with his personal life and his mental health and all of that. And then watching it back, you're like, wow, this is documentary of a mental breakdown. It, this right turn on red. 
in California. They're talking about banning it. Look, I always thought that one that the um, the right turn on red was the one thing we could pretty much import from America. Well, we left turn on red over here, but like you know, I, I have said I was to thought it was a sensible option for decades now. There are America has only made two contributions to civilization, really: the small and the right turn on red. And now we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and we're going to, why? So that people can carry on looking at their phones and step into the road and it not be their responsibility. That's really what it is. That's really at the root of this, right? What we're saying, we're shifting the responsibility for the safety of pedestrians from pedestrians to car users. Now, I'm fine as a car user to be responsible for not running over the pedestrian, but I can't be responsible for that pedestrian is looking at their phone and stepping into the road. And what you're realistically asking people to do is in a four-way, what's already a four-way intersection, you're now making it not just four-way, you're making it eight-way because I need to look not just for the cars, but I also need to look for people walking and even for cyclists as well. You're making the job very, very hard for the motorist. And yet the motorist is the one with this dangerous piece of mm. equipment. There should be some responsibility on the pedestrian. I know not for all pedestrians. I get that there's children and old people and so on. I get that. But at some point, the pedestrian has to take responsibility for not stepping out in front of the car. Am I a halfway? Kale Yarborough's gone. Yeah, I did have a quick a quick scan about, about, about the gentleman. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of stories uh, about him. Um, I, I uh, you know, I do feel like, I guess the headline for me is, is that, you know, I know in the modern era, there's been Jimmy Johnson and, and all of that, but, but um, for, it, it, I think for the classical period, there is King Richard Petty, there's David Pearson, there's Bobby Allison, and there's Cale Yarborough. You know, and you can throw Dale into that mix as well, can't you? But he, I, to me, he comes from, I guess he comes from an era that I remember rather than the era before that. But I feel from those formative years of NASCAR, there was, you know, Richard King Richard, Pearson, Kale and Bobby. Um, and now only Bobby and King Richard are left. And that's uh, <coughs> like, that's a thing. Um, mm -hmm. So that was my first thought on it. Um, my second thought is that, that, of course, the truly immortal moment for, for Kale Yarborough will be that, um, you know, 1976 or 1979 Daytona 500, the one that they televised have you seen the end of that race do you know what i'm talking about oh marvelous well it was the daytona it was the daytona 500 and there was it was the first time it was going to be televised 
and across the northeast there was terrible weather and everybody had nothing to do but be inside watching tv so the viewing figures were massive the race was an okay race but then right towards the end do you know have you heard of bobby's brother donnie donnie allison Donnie had a less successful career, but was generally considered more wild. So Bobby and Kale are like on the home stretch, right? On the back stretch, like like half a lap to to go. And and on that back stretch, it's worth watching. They just go at each other like it was the Dukes of Hazzard. They are just, and, and, you know, but at NASCAR speeds, right? It, it's, mm-hmm. And it ends in the infield. And then Bobby stops. And then there's a fight. And really the whole, it's, it was everything that NASCAR could have ever wanted and dreamed. And it made NASCAR, um, it launched, that was the moment that launched NASCAR that that's the pivotal moment when NASCAR stopped being a Southern regional sport and started being the behemoth that it, it grew into in the, in the 20th century, really a, a key thing. And I guess um, something that I think about, because as always with the cars, it's not just the racing. Um, it's not just the racing. It's how the story gets told. That's the, that's the important thing. And, uh, and I guess, uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, so Kale, uh, uh, a part of that. Um, the other story that that I think of, and it, it made me laugh recently when I was uh, karting with my son, um, was uh, Junior Johnson, who hired Kale because he thought Kale was the same kind of driver as he was, who was just a guy who, you know, held the pedal to the metal, basically. You know, there was not too much, you know, there was no... Like you know, holding back, he was a charger, a go, you know, and and uh, and and uh, the uh, don't know where I read this, um, so I would struggle to find a source, but it, it's you know the car is in the pits, and Junior leans over the car to offer Kale advice, and the advice is go to the front, and. When I got in the go kart the other day, I like uh, Ollie is is uh, Ollie was like in the sort of pit lane bit with me. And as I like got in and put my helmet on, he patted me on the head and went go to the front, <laughs> and, then got, and then got behind the pit wall. It's editor John, and of course, typically, I uh, fail to mention the most important things about my three things I remembered about Kale. I forgot to mention the most important things. I think the most important thing has to be the three back-to-back championships, which in modern motorsport, just I think because of the way the engineering is, it's not unusual for a driver or a team and driver to be dominant for a long period. But in the 70s, there was no branch of motorsport where anybody was, was dominant for an extended period. So Kale's three championships back to back they really warrant further study and and really within those three championships back to back you you have the greatness of of Kelly Arbor and I've never really looked closely at that and it really it probably warrants it to to be honest Uh, the other of course great memory of of Kelly Arbor which I forgot to make any reference to was the tangle with Sam McQuack 
which if you've not seen, I'm not going to spoil it. I'll, I'll just leave you with, you know, with an encouragement to find the, the link in the description of the pod here. Um, the, the line I always liked was, was when Kale was interviewed after the incident, he said, I felt like an astronaut. When I looked down and I saw grass, I knew I wasn't in the racetrack anymore. Really an, an awesome thing. So Kale, right? The uh, the retirement story, I like this as well. He's got four daughters. I probably told you this before, but the, for the benefit of the podcast. Um, he, he's, he's home one day. His daughters are just sitting around and he says, why aren't, you, why aren't you riding those bikes or something like that? And they're like, oh, the bikes are broken. And he's like, well, why don't you come and tell me that the bikes were broken? I had to fix them. And they're like, well, because you're never here. And that was the moment where he was like, huh. I'm going to retire. I'm going to be here. Which I think is, is, I mean, it's that NASA, it's that story, which is so good that you just want it to be true, even mm. if it isn't. And again, I don't remember where I heard or read that story. I may have even heard it from, um, there's a, there's a video on YouTube. I'll put a link for it where it's like a NASCAR reunion. It was filmed in 1998 and it's really funny. And it's when the legends have retired, but they're still compass mentis and, you know, they get on each other. Um, you know, they talk about cheating. Um, it's, it's, and, oh, I did and, watch a bit of that, the Dale Earnhardt podcast. Oh, the Dale, the Dale Jr. podcast yeah, is, Junior, Junior. is different. And Dale Jr. has done a thing about cheating. And this is this, the Dale Jr. thing's contemporary. This is from 20 years ago. So this right. has got, you know, this has got Cuckoo Marlin still being alive this has got dick brooks in it still being alive you know so it, it it's uh 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 you know and it's got daryl waltrip before the tv career you know very unfiltered uh, like 44 <laughs> teeth version of daryl waltrip which is uh which is kind of cool it's not x it just uh yeah um so the broken bicycle in the retirement um and and my final Kale's story is the winning of the 19. So after this, he only does big events, right? But he's ready to do the Daytona 500 because obviously it's big payday. He and Pearson would would do it, right? The practice week, the car he, he qualifies well. Pole, I think. If the if mm. I bins the car though, car toileted totally, right? They don't have a car. The team do not have a car for the race. They're casting around. The sponsor is Hooters. Maybe a local Hooters restaurant might have a demonstration car. They do. They drive two hours to Tennessee or wherever, pick up the car, tow it back and turn the car that was sitting outside a Hooters restaurant into the race car, which Kale then goes out and wins with. Hooters is- in the restaurant where the chicks all wear tight tops. I, I I know it for that very reason. Have you been to one? <laughs> no. I went to one with Mark Newton once. Very odd experience. Very odd. Oh, I bet. Um, like, He's like, you're uh, there for, because, you know, everybody knows you're like there for the tits. The food is like McDonald's food for much higher prices. So that's really, that was a very odd yeah. experience. Yeah, no, that is a bit weird. Although everyone knows you're there for the tits, you've got to like act like you're not there for the tits. It's very strange. Which is difficult when the food's shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
if, the food, if, if, if the food was good or if it was a pub you could exist in a happy realm that you weren't just here for the tits you were yeah. here for the beer but yeah you could have what they call in physics a superposition where you're in like in quantum mechanics where you're in two states at once yeah so <laughs> it's not right it's, the question is understandable to ask in what orbit is the electron but it is a silly question in a sense because it's in both orbits it's just there a different percentage of the time when you actually stop and look so it's like how often are you perving how often are you nomming your burger hopefully not nomming hopefully not nomming your taco <laughs> exactly it's that nomming your taco that is my quantum mechanics theory of hooters um the um what, what also that what was the what was that story you, you were telling oh yeah that reminds me of the story that they tell on which if you haven't watched the episode is one of the best 44 teeth episodes for me i like the one where they are in james's garage and it's just chatting to james talking about the world life the universe and everything and it's about a 25 30 minute episode and he talks about how he fucked his leg up and had the accident and i won't tell the story because he should tell the story and he does it much better than i ever could and it's a genuinely compelling piece james, james being the bristolian mechanic that's like the dick the whisperer the bristolian guy who owns yeah who owns um uh jls racing or like well he's co-owns but he's the main guy at jls racing in bristol yeah um but the other one that they tell is where it's uh fagan and um the other northern guy that right that, that does bike the, the elderly chap who does um oh, what's his name it'll come back to me um who does like some of their foreign trips on dirt bikes and stuff tell me tell me afterwards and i can dub it in <laughs> cool i'll leave a space you know, here i've been doing that i've been like interrupting myself whenever i've been factually incorrect i've just interrupted myself and been like mossy you can do better than that i think it's mossy. yeah, yeah. um but uh, he, um, they're telling that stories about their best, their worst crashes and injuries that they've had. And Mossy tells a story about when they had, I think it was a Jixa Thou or one of the like the, the big superbike launches back in the day. Uh, and they'd had it for a while and they'd done their stuff. And basically they needed to, they, they were doing wheelie shots and they were like, they checked down the street. Uh, and anyway, long story short, he fucked up and made a mistake and over wheelied it and basically dropped it on himself. So like over wheelied, but like the, the photographer got and he said, if you've ever seen a shot of a Jigsaw Thou, like with the rear number plate rubbing the floor, like and an overdone wheelie, that's me because the photographer got the shot. Um, but then like the bike fell on him and obviously he like cartwheeled down the street, smashed to bits. So he had the <laughs> out of him and like they've only got, there's only one of them. So they've got the bike, the UK press bike, and it's now not fit for purpose. Um, at least cosmetically. Um, so uh, he ring, but the, the, he and the, the guy that they were out on the shoot with went to the pub to debrief. What the fuck are we going to do? Kind of conversation. Um, and then one of them had the genius idea to call the head of, I think it was the, the, the Crescent Suzuki or someone in like that. So it, it was one of the motorsport teams that were running the bikes. And he said like, I've had this. And he went, Oh, come down, down. You can nick any bits you want. I've got four of them in the, in the, in the garage. Oh, like, yeah, you God, boy, do I owe you some beers and uh, it gets fixed. But that whole episode is like a 34 minute episode, 30 or 40 minute episode where they're talking about the different injuries are oh, worst injury I had was when I fucked my knee up at Donington. You know, the tarmacs there um, at Thruxton. He was whenever you hear Fagan talk about racing at Thruxton, he always talks about how like the track's super abrasive. It's like you crash. It's like being on sandpaper straight through your leathers. And like, that's where he left like a bit of his kneecap somewhere 
on what, uh, church. It's it's out there somewhere if you care to get, if you can find it. Um, it's that that sort of injury. Um, but the, the stories are really well told and really compelling by two guys just chatting to each other. And Mossy's story about being in the, the superbike and the overwheelie um, had the same sort of like, you know, he said it, you, you almost wouldn't believe it, but there is that shot of me overwheeling it. He said that's about half a second before it lands on me. It has been approved, by the way. The spot ETF. ETH's over 2,500 now. Dude. Jim. It's, it's that Monster Magnet song, isn't it? I want to get paid for being right. I'm... <laughs> We are so smart, so how come we ain't rich? You know, so we need to get fucking money now. Um, yes, in the milk, yes, in the fridge. It's turning into cheese. If I'm so smart, how come I ain't rich? No one knows, no one sees. By the way, on, on, to be back onto cars very briefly, so I will say this for the pod. I'm going to give you an update now on the BMW. More things have gone wrong with it. Um, I've had enough of it. Like so. Oh, I knew it was going. I listened back to episode fourteen, and I could, I could tell. I, I've got to get rid of it. I mean, and like you know, it's it, it's just too many things now. The latest one is it went in for a service because it needed a service, but it went in for the MOT first, and it got the wash wipe motor had died, uh, and the the warranty that they sold me at the dealership, which which also overlapped with the BMW warranty one, which is a bit sus, it seems to me, because when I called up BMW and said, I need to renew your warranty, they went, oh, you can't because the other one's running. I suddenly thought, I put it on the phone and went, oh, okay, that's nice of them to tell that, be honest. And then I thought, hold on a second. Well, in which case the dealer sold me concurrent warranties from the start. So someone's fucked up here. But the latest issue is none of those. The latest issue is someone has taken the cover off the amplifier for some reason um, and then glued it back. So in the rain recently, water has got into the amplifier and wrecked it. So I wouldn't have known that, except for the fact that I was driving along one day and about 120 decibels worth of scream started coming from the speakers. Like uh, for about 20 seconds, and then it would stop for about 20 seconds and then just carry on. And there's nothing you can do about it. If you turn, turn stop the car off and turn it off and on, sometimes if you got out of the car, that would stop. But, you know, so I got them to investigate that on the service. And they called up the D, they called up the warranty and said, this is like 1500 quid, it's screwed. And they went, oh, we don't cover stereo equipment. So that's not covered. Um, so now I'm in a position where, and there's a little, you know, there's so many other things. I mean, I've been making a list of all the things I'm going to write to BMW about, because I'm going to write to them. I'm going to put it back in their court. And hopefully BMW being the standard company they are, they will say, look, we done you wrong. You've been screwed over by this dealer. We'll put this right. And I hope they do. And if they do, I will say on this podcast, what a stand-up, lovely job they did, and what great people are, and that everyone can get stitched up. These things happen. It's bad luck, but it's about. I mean, I'm making a list, and so far the list is at of different things that have gone wrong: oh, the warranty, the reversing beep, the amp screaming, the wheels repainting, the aircon, the cigarette light not functioning in the front, 
my vibrating brakes, the maps that I paid for won't download into the car, the wash wipe pump has failed, failing the MOT pushing off the road for six months, and the stop start is disabled and can't be turned back on, whether or not I want to, but will turn itself back on randomly and scare the shit out of you here and there and just stop start in the middle of town and you're thinking, has the car just died? And then when you put your foot back on, you take your foot off the clutch, you'll put your foot back on the clutch kind of thing, it will then start back up again. But you can't turn it off or on. How many miles is it wearing? 40 something, 42. And it's a 20... 2017. It's not old. I mean, did, did you ever have it before? Like, use it for track work or I don't something? Know. Do they bang a race it? I mean, I, I just don't know what they... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I lost. So I mean, look, you know, I, I don't think this is a representative. It doesn't. I go onto the BMW page today to find the warrant, the the, the, uh, the email to complain to, and I thought this is good. And then I thought, I'll say, I better like make sure I've not forgotten stuff. And all the way through the afternoon, again, oh yeah, mustn't forget that. Oh yeah, there was that as well. Um, so I, can't, I mean, I can't. I, I, I try and be a decent bloke. I can't sell this car on in this state. I'm going to have to get this stuff fixed one way or the other because it's not right. You know, I can't just be that asshole. Well, or just be honest with with a dealer because yeah, well, uh, one or the other. I, I, but I can't take a bath and, on this. But I bought this used approved from BMW, and I bought the warranty that they told me to. And it's been off the only reason it's been off the road, and I ran out of BMW warranty is because my wife got cancer, and I couldn't get this stuff fixed because I needed to be out and about, and I didn't have time to have the car away. I couldn't be away and have the car away at the dealer because I had no one to drop me down and pick it up. And the dealer, the nearest dealer in Hungerford, don't give you loan cars. So you have to go over there and either get a train back and then a cab from or walk four five miles back from the station to here, which I have done on one occasion. Or so you know, I mean, it was just an absolute nightmare. You know, with Angie with the hip operations and the cancer and all, I just didn't have to. I just have to run the the uh, the ever reliable um, Fiesta and thank the heavens for Ford, the loving the blue oval as ever, and think I can't believe this Stuttgart shit. Like, what is going on? Um, Munich, sorry. Um, so yeah, look, I'm sure they'll put it right, and I'm going to write to them and put it right, and I will update on what they have to say. Um, but uh, it's got to go because you know it's like I can't have that sort of thing. Like my niece is 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 a tremulous lass; she's been in the car, it's screaming like no, like the the, the car's got a monster in it. You know, it's like I can't. And I, I was driving it home when I had to, I literally had to stop several times to get out and just uh, my ears stopped ringing. And when I drove it over there the other day to get the service done, I bought I put air, earplugs in. The sort of the, the the sort of like waxy ones that you can shove right into your ears to really block, and it was still agony to drive it over there. Um, so I, I it's I don't trust it anymore. So look, I'm, hopefully they'll put it right, but and then you know I may buy another BMW, but at the moment my 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 thinking around what I will likely buy is from Toyota, which is not something I would have thought I would have said, and is a uh, Yaris, which is very much not the Yaris my mum's just bought. Um, but I like the idea of a Yaris GR with the track pack. Yeah. Those things are beasts. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to trial it. But, yeah, anyway, so that, we'll see. Because, I mean, look, if BMW come back and put, sort me out and do right by me, yeah, I, I mean, would not be I, I, would, I would wait and see what happens with BMW. Yeah. But otherwise, I would go into a, to a Toyota dealership and just trade it. Because yeah. the reality is, right, I watch these you know, that Chops Garage guy, or I watch this guy, um, Car UK, this bloke Lee up in Crew. Um, you know, they have a business where they buy cars cheap, figure out what they need, do that work, and sell the car. And they sell the car for market value. So you might buy a Nissan Qashqai for 
£700 at the auction, but you might have to put £1,300 into it, doing work that you or I would consider unnecessary, respraying a bumper, you know, fitting, refitting, you know, doing the rust around the... No, because the person who's buying a sub $5,000 car in North Devon, where Chops does it, that person, it's a new car. Mm, no, true. Yeah, it's a bad comment. So they need it to look nice. It's their only car. Yeah, yeah. They need it They need it to look nice. Yeah. They need to have a new no, car feeling. So, and, and so there's, and and the point about, so you would say, well, these guys are just, I used to feel like dealers just tart the car up. But what Lee and, and Chops, James, do is not that at, at all. Yeah, they do the aesthetic stuff because that's what customers need. But they'll also do, you know, they'll also rust proof the shit out of it, to quote Lee, you know, because what you want is the customer to leave and tell his friends. Yeah. You run a business in the town. Oh, hell yeah. And you want them to come back. Yeah. Verbal, verbal recommendations. That's, that is, that is, they are king. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and, and so the other thing is, is consumer law in, in Britain is very different from here. Here, they can sell you a vehicle as is, you know, which means that, you know, when you drive off the lot, if the engine falls out at the end of the block, it's on you. Whereas in Britain, you have six months like consumer protection. Uh, you, you, you know, in the first 30 days, you can return the car, no questions asked to a dealer. You know, if you, so the, the level of, of consumer so what that means is if you so for guys like you know what lee and james both do is sub five grand um economy cars right and the reason that they won't touch stuff like bmws or jaguars is that they have no idea that thing could lunch an expensive component at any time mm -hmm. right and they just can't be on the hook for that because it would just suck all the margin out of that car mm. because by the time you've put 13 grand into that, you, you've put, you know, you bought, you paid 700 for the cash car. You put $1,300 in bodywork, servicing, you know, you maybe put brakes on it. You probably put tires on it because, you know, it had some mismatched, terrible ones on it. You just, you just made it not just look like a decent car, actually be a decent car, right? At that point, it's going out the door for two and a half grand or something like that, which feels like a ripoff. You only paid 700 for it. And that's what you and I are thinking, Jesus, you know, what's he really done to it? I could have changed the oil and changed the spark plugs myself, but, and you know, and I didn't need the bodywork. but the point is the customer, their customers demand the complete package. You know, you or I could go to one of the auctions they go to and pay $700 and roll the dice. Right. I'd be ready to do that if I was not, you know, if when I came to England, I wasn't buying a car that I needed to like just work ski and work ski and work ski and not mm. break down. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, so um, but dude, like, it, I, yeah. so we'll we'll see. I mean, it's, I mean, they're, they're, I'm, I forgot you were talking about the southwest, but yeah, there's definitely a market down there for that, and absolutely, that's a reasonable amount of money to invest in a car. And if you're getting a car that only costs ten to fifteen to start with, it's not that old a car. You know, it's um, <clears throat> so you want it to be decent theoretically. Um, a sub five grand could be quite a re reasonably newish car, you know, not depending yeah. on the price of the car. So yeah, absolutely. And 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 what you you know what people look for, isn't it? Is they just want something that can run them around a little bit. Yeah, but they want to impress the neighbours with their nice shiny wheels. Yeah, exactly. Which is why you know 
the attitude that, that you and I take where, you know, I just am astonished that the Lee particularly, it's just been an eye opener for me how just the more bodywork stuff, the more work you have to put into it, so the more it hurts the car. So, you know, years ago when I cracked, when that Volvo did a timing chain, nobody wanted it because nobody wanted to do an engine swap on it because the bodywork was not good. And I was like, what do you mean the body? What's the bodywork got to do with it? Like either you're going to do the engine or you're not. Like why is the bodywork got anything to do with it? Well, the bodywork's got everything to do with it because the bodywork is where the value of the car lies for, for most people most of the Hell time. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, which not... brings me on to that E55, right? Because that is the classic example of something that can be driven. You know, I put 1,500 miles on it through pebble time. It wore those miles brilliantly, but like it just needs so much money spending on it cosmetically. Like off the top of my head, tires, which obviously it needs all four, they're bloody expensive. Um, rust around the sunroof, big hole, many cracks in windshield. Um, I mean, just that, right, is probably more than a thousand dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely more than a thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, enough of this depressing stuff about German cars yes. that don't work. No. Henry Seagrave, Sir Henry Seagrave, the first man to do 200 miles an hour, the first vehicle to do 200 miles an hour, the Irving Napier Sunbeam, also known as the thousand horsepower Sunbeam. Um, the National Motor Museum are doing this big thing at the moment to make it run again. The last time it ran, it has two 22 and a half liter V12 Sunbeam Aero engines. The last time it ran, they only got one working. It like potted around Brooklands or Silverstone or something. Bit lame-o. Plan to do, plan to raise a bit more money, plan to bring it out to Daytona and run it on the beach at Daytona with both engines. Cool. Yes. I approve. Awesome. Yeah, I thoroughly awesome. agree with that. So, yeah. and speaking of which, that is pretty cool. Um, they're fundraising. Oh, are they? I'm going to mute you there, and they're fundraising at the moment, and I'm going to add the link, go to the National Motor Museum yeah, yeah, website, yeah, yeah. contribute, <clears throat> be involved. Um, super, I am super enthusiastic. Um, Definitely. Um, I was only looking for like, the the uh, the members meeting this year. But Goodwood is celebrating Can Am. Wow. Yeah, I'm quite looking forward to that. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, all Chevy big blocks, right? So it's it's a bit like Formula One in the period where there's one motor, and then you sort of build around that one motor, and it's who can build the best mousetrap. Mm -hmm. And and the McLarens really were it until the Porsche 917. You understand them, the mutant Porsche 917 that was first the 91710, then the 91730. 91730 is the 1300 horsepower La Talladega at 244 mile an hour ended the Can-Am series jobby. Sorry, right? uh, you're like, fast. <laughs> It's like Porsche. Porsche doesn't didn't just build tanks in the Second World War. They demolished a whole motor racing series. <laughs> um, yeah, the the interest in Can Am for for me, uh, well, no, the interest in Can Am generally is is just that mixed field, right? Because it was shadow 
as, as it was McLaren, it was Shadow, um, it was Surtees, it was Stewart, it was, you know, really uh, uh, a cool um, period of, of motorsport. Um, I'm just going to go and check on the hound. Hang on a sec. Yeah, cool. I'll check on the missus. She's going to bed, I think. Electric news. Um, I'm kind of obsessed by electric bikes. We've sort of touched on this before. I'm obsessed by mm -hmm. the crossover between a mountain bike, a street bike, a motorcycle, a moped. Uh, I feel like a scooter all of the definitions are being blurred. We talked about that Honda Motor Campo thing before, but that's sort of not what I'm talking about here. And I'm not talking about these sort of scooters, these like, um, like, like a, 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 when I say, a, I'm not talking about, uh, there's a difference between scooters, which are great for like mobility, like sub 15 miles an hour, like be between the tube and your office kind of thing the underground in your office the metro in your office or you know if you live in a apartment building and you're just going to go down to the ground floor and just pop out to a restaurant and grab some food and come back again you know the scooter is the perfect solution for that on the sidewalk off the sidewalk that kind of thing um but right there is what i want to talk about is this legal gray area right and and i want to say that there's kind of two there's and i feel like the machines are you know, the reality is if you buy a decent mountain bike at the moment, a decent electric mountain bike, that is more capable than a dirt bike and can be ridden like a dirt bike. And I, I thought I had this thought and then I was at the school pickup. Um, I was at the school drop off and I'm at the line sitting there in the Mustang looking down the hill, watching the traffic come up the hill and the traffic stopped and then splitting lanes coming to the front lane is a guy on an electric mountain bike. He's wearing a dirt bike helmet and dirt bike armor. And he's sitting at the lights. He split lanes and away from the lights, he picks up the front wheel and whips up past me. He's not upsetting anybody. It took place absolutely silently. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Now, we were walking the other day out, um, my wife and I. And uh, there's some dude like on an electric mountain bike who's like riding. He's not... Um, pedaling at all he's just riding around at motorcycle speeds but on and off the sidewalk and you know on the on you mm. know around the park and and you know uh this without any kind of armor or head protection whatsoever so i i feel like the technology is very very exciting it's very very wild west and we are entering a new era of head trauma 
and run down pedestrians, the like of which we've not seen since, you know, the boom in motorcycles in the 19, in the, you know, in the in the early teens and then in the 20s and then in the post-war period. You know, I, I feel it's because because these things are motorcycles, they, they perform like motorcycles and they need to be ridden like motorcycles yet they look like bikes and can be bought like bikes and psychologically people think of them as pedal bikes and they are a different class of vehicle scooters are particularly you know incite vitriol and anger in a way that um other modes of transport don't the thing with the, the, thing with the scooters was the scooters were so badly introduced was that the scooters never should have been allowed to just litter the streets in the way that they were that was was outrageous and and in cities where much of the population is is hurting for income to see these hundreds of dollars worth of scooters scattered on the streets and it for it to be like just vc money that was pissed up the wall that was offensive like that was offensive to me i don't know if that if other people thought maybe that was a very sort of valley kind of, of perspective but it seemed to me it, it illustrated the grotesque silicon valley waste that they were ready to like have these scooters and just watch them be destroyed on the streets on the off chance that there might be some kind of a different urban mobility model here. That was bird went bust. They were valued at two and a half billion 18 months ago or something ridiculous. The scooter people, um, they, they were the ones that I was, uh, or it was revel mm. that I was with. They pulled out of this market. Um, yeah, it, it's a shame. Communal scooters, communal mopeds, brilliant idea, but nobody can seem to get the business model right, or at least they haven't yet. Mm. No, um, no, it's and it's 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 interesting because attitudes change with age and stuff as well. So, like you know, the younger folks seem to be happier with it. So, therefore, you know, um. I mean, I've no problem with them. I like the idea of like the electric scooters zipping around to, to do stuff. And it does sort of, you know, take volume off the road. It takes weight off the road. It takes energy out of the cycle because it takes less energy to move you from one place to another. It's more convenient. Um, so I can see lots of upsides to it. But you're absolutely right. Most people treat scoot. There'll be plenty of people uh, who get back on a scooter, whose electric scooter, whose last scooter was the little two-wheel push-along variety they rode along the pavement when they were like seven and sort of have in their head that they're a sort of more convenient version of the same thing. And sure. those people will still be thinking that in A&E. Sure. Um, yeah, I, Ollie, Ollie and I followed a guy on a scooter who was on the sidewalk and off the sidewalk and he jumped off the sidewalk, like without looking at no, like, you know, the motorcycle test in england the lifesaver no lifesaver he just like jumped off and and what this is it's on me that he doesn't throw himself under the wheels of my mustang like what what's going on we obviously mm. had no helmet or anything it's really uh well the, the, exactly you know you know uh, yeah i mean there are some people who complain or don't ride 
push bikes with a lid. And I mean, I sort of understand, I have, I have a sort of inherent sympathy with being allowed to do what you want in most circumstances. But you are a dickhead if you don't think you're going to hurt yourself more badly if you fall off without a lid on. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, like, it's, a, it's a big deal in the States, isn't it, that some states are non-helmet laws and others are, are helmet law, uh, helmet states. And, and um, you know, my position has, has shifted on it in that I do think it's personal choice. Um, but I'd be very angry with Ollie if he ever rode without one. You know, now, yeah, am no, I all right I mean, with him riding yeah. up and down the street on his pedal bike without a helmet? Not really, but I'm not going to be like, Ollie, put your helmet on. You know, I'm like, if I, if I get out and I get down the hill, if I, if I get out and I start riding my pedal bike and I realize the wind's in my hair and I've forgotten my helmet, which I sometimes do still, um, I'm not going to turn around and go back and get it. But having said that, I can't remember the last time I rode any kind of bike without a helmet. And yeah, I, went, I mean, it's it's falling off the bike of any once you've fallen off a motorbike, you realize how much it hurts and how much there's not much give in the time. Oh, and how much it just spoils all the fucking fun. Everything. If you can like fall yeah. off and not be hurt, that's not yeah. like a sissy. That's you can get on and carry on with the game. Get back on and go again. Yeah, exactly. Like. That, yeah, let's not fucking spoil the game. And also spoil the game for the other road users. Like, you know, you might be comfortable riding your Harley like like an asshole with no helmet on um, with your denim jacket protection. Like, but when you hit the front of my F-150, you're dead. And now I've got to live with that. Whereas if you had a lid on and a back protector, you might have been all right. Yeah. That's how I, that's how I felt about this. All right. That's how I felt about this numpty high schooler jumping off the curb in front of me in the Mustang. Yeah. So I don't want to have to live with your death because you're a dickhead. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, so it's, it's still up on yeah, the roads is the answer, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. Uh, did you watch the, about this uh, Johnny Smith just talking about the, you know, late break show talking about this Volvo EX30 electric car? Um, yeah, I can't remember. It was a while back. What, what was um he was like, it's a mile. He was like, it's a mile. He feels it's a milestone car. He feels that in terms of size, shape, and price, it's a milestone car. I couldn't get past the first five minutes of the video because I'm just like, it's just boring. I'm not knocking the Volvo. It might be a great. I, I, I just, I didn't see anything in there. I guess what really put me off was it has a Quartic wheel, which is, I, I know, like Allegro, right? I just, like, just. The steering wheel needs to spin in your hands. It's like fundamental. Yeah, I, I did. What I'm looking at it now. I did watch some of it. I think. Remember, to be fair, remember I the Mister Men in Mister. Do you remember the Mister Men in in yeah. in? Uh, uh, there's one where it's nonsense land, and it's the nonsense cup, and and uh, the it. Uh, uh, and the character, I can't remember Mr. What his name is, but he's desperately trying to think of something to win the competition. And he thinks back to other competitions. And one of the other competitions was a car that had square wheels. That was one of the other winners of the most ridiculous thing of the year, like the ridiculous cup, right? It's, it's really, and, and you're going to tell me the steering wheel is going to be square. So did you have an opinion about the EX30 or not? Uh, I found the whole thing somewhat dull. I find his reporting style slightly too dry for me. It's a little bit like not engaging. It's like he's like reading out someone else's opinions on occasion. Um, but 
I mean, look, it, it didn't excite me. I don't like SUVs. Well, I think they're his own opinions that he's made notes on. I think that's his way of doing oh, okay. Well, look, fair enough. I mean, I like, you know, fair play to him. But, like, you know, it, it's... It's, I don't find them the most engaging videos from that particular, from the late break show. Um, and I didn't find, it's one of those ones where generally speaking, electric cars need to offer for me something special to differentiate, to see why I would want it. Cause that's what I want from all cars. Um, and that doesn't offer anything. That is like a vanilla piece of bland sponge cake. And they're trying to be that. And they're trying to be efficient and slightly edgy with the design. The design doesn't particularly excite me. Um, and it from the side on it's slab white, might as well be a kitchen appliance, you know? Um, yeah, but so all of really these modern that. SUVs are like that, aren't they? Yeah, I know, but I, that's why I don't want an SUV. You know, why do I want more car than I need? I feel bad. Part of the reason I buy small cars is because, like, I'm even though I'm buying a performance version, they might admit, is because at least I'm moving less metal around the place. So, you know, the idea of some of the, the electric cars where they're trying to be small and super light and use that power to wait to give you an exciting drive. Okay, cool. I can see that. Um, if it's going to be a big chunky car, where's my 700 mile range? Cause you've got shit tons of batteries that hasn't got that. So it's, where's my special thing. Yeah. You know, I'm looking for something to deliver me a bit of additional value out of it. And it isn't there. What that episode one. And also like, what the shit, I don't need that sort of ugly piece of crap family car to do five seconds to 60. What is the point in that? I don't understand why all these people want thousands of horsepower and they want their big ugly sedan to do not to 60 in like three seconds what is the point in that you're putting ridiculous performance supercar performance into the hands of people who have no idea how to use it and will kill themselves off the line that's why there's so many accidents in that way because you know these people have drag strip performance and the fastest thing they've ever owned before is like you know have you not have you not have, have you not found that the traffic light grand prix against the Teslarati is they zip away from you being like, I'll beat you in your Mustang whilst you're like grinding up through the gears. Right. And then they're like run out of steam at a speed, which, you know, I find there's a certain speed in California that I am ready to go far beyond that. Most people are like, Oh, whoops, that's too fast for me. Well, I mean, I can understand both sides of that argument. Um, and I would say, you know, it's Jixus, right? Jixus just spoil you. Motorbikes spoil you for any of that sort of stuff. I mean, like, but there's a time and place for all of that. And my point is, is, is that, you know, the traffic like Grand Prix, when you can pull away at what was hitherto 100,000 pound car to get you into that class, for most people, it's a cheap thrill. Yeah, it's like, oh, have you seen my Nord 6? Great. But like, are you actually, have you done anything else in another performance car? Because now you're approaching that next bend that you usually yeah. tool around at, at enthusiast speeds. And if you aren't an enthusiast and used to placing your car properly, that Tesla is not going to save you. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. And, and, and you're also crashing something that's very heavy, aren't you? So yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I'd actually not thought about this angle before of putting performance into um, people who, into the hands of people who, I like the idea of it. I like the idea of emancipating that. And why not have like that sort of like top Trump figure for your, for, for your sedan? Cool. But, you know, they're, they're, they're already talking about, I saw read an article the other day about how they're thinking about that tarmac might not be the future and they might need to go back to concrete roads because the electric vehicles will be too heavy. And therefore, in the hotter summers, they'll just sink into the tarmac. And therefore, we need to go back to having expansion joint concrete because it can actually take the, the weight better. And therefore, 
that we might have to, you know, when the roads are replaced, go back to a harder road material because, you know, which is perhaps I think less grippy as well. Um, so you might have to go back to that because the vehicles are just so heavy with the battery packs in them. Um, now, look, maybe the battery technology gets ahead, you know, processing certainly has kept ahead in those sort of Moore's law kind of way. So it hasn't been there yet, but I'm hopeful. Um, yeah, let's see. So on the subject of heavy electric cars that kind of do do it or not, maybe not your 700 mile range, but the 500 mile range, uh, Lucid, um, I drove one, what well, even inspired me to start doing this. That must have been a year, 18 months ago, maybe even longer than that now. But the uh, the, the point is that I think I'm making that they are short of money at the moment. They are arguably... Well, they're selling something to super rich people. Um, well, I think what they stand or fall on now is whether they were backed by Saudi money. And it's really, it's whether you want to, they want to carry on. Mm-hmm putting their hands in their pockets or not to, to continue, you know, um, them developing that the product I, the product I experienced really did feel like a next generation Mercedes S class, whether what's being put in the hands of consumers was the same as the particular model that I drove, because it seems to me that they do different editions. And it seems to me that, that these electric makers even better than the legacy makers are really good at like decontenting. Like your the Breeze new Tesla is a nice place to be. The basey ones, they're like a McDonald's. But yet the overall look mm. is the same. And you know, to a casual observer, there's not that much there's not that much difference. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because like, you know, a really nice S class place to be, cool. But how many Mercedes S classes are they selling? And is the S class on its own making money? Or is it being supported by the E and the C and the M's and you know, all the AMG? You know, how much is it? Well, I think I, I would be surprised if the S didn't make money. You know what I mean? But, but like they, but, the other but, haven't got know, that part of the reason why you part of the reason why you buy a Mercedes S class is because it's a Mercedes S class, and you're getting the S because of all the other people who've got the A and the E's and the C's and the, you know and the A's. But, but, and, not, you know. but not even that. Wherever you go in the world, the three pointed star has a unique. Yeah, there's just no. There's it has if, badge if, swag, no, doesn't it? It has badge. It, well, swag. it has badge swag, but but more than that, the Mercedes S Class is like the place to be chauffeured, isn't it? It's the car of diplomats and kings yeah. and presidents. You know, it has that kind of yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. So, so I, however great I felt the Lucid product was, yeah, it just shows how hard it is to find traction. Maybe you know, maybe we should be crediting um, the Muskinator for actually being able to you know, create a, a commercially successful product. I mean, for sure. I think he, he absolutely does deserve like some, some credit for that. Um, where I, I can't verbally give him that credit without offering on the other hand, the fact that he's, you know, product developing on the road with people's lives as crash test dummies. Um, and I feel that's a bit, well, of an asshole move. I'd agree. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, yin yang. <laughs> um, uh, pivoting. Um, a couple of thoughts I've had recently, just you know, just apropos uh, nothing, just uh, in the weeks uh, since we last spoke. Um, the Jaguar Mark II, 
indeed the Jaguar Mark One, the Jaguar sedan that the everybody knows, um, came with a three point where two point four liter straight six, three point four liter straight six, three point eight liter straight six, right? So the same block as the Le Mans winners, um, but with you know different carburation and heads and, and compression and and, uh, and and all of that. Um, in it's sort of peak form so in like the 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 3.8 you know manual transmission form mm -hmm. properly tuned that was like a 220 horse car obviously that would endow it with even with you know the four speed overdrive transmission at the time that would still that would endow it with what 120 125 mile an hour top speed right now i need you to compare that with anything else that you could get in britain at that time other fast cars at the time the capri three liter 130 horse like anything like an alpha sud or a golf gti these guys this is like a hundred and change if you're lucky, a lot mm. of them are sub escort Mexico's like 90 horsepower or something. How often did you see a Capri three liter when we were young? Never. Right. Now I'm not saying there were a lot of Mark two Jags around when, when we were young, but there were still enough that you could have picked them up cheap. That banger, that rusty banger. If it was a manual transmission, three, eight car, or some people preferred the three force because apparently they revved higher. That was still a meaningfully fast car, way faster than anything else. And I think I almost, I like want to pay tribute to the Jaguar Mark II as being just that much of a BMW M5, like not just a, a little bit of a E39 M5, like a total E39 M5, like way faster than anything else. Nothing came close. Mm. You know, 10 years later, it was still slaughtering everything else. The Capri, the Capri 2.8 only had 160 horse. Alpha GTV, 170. Sierra Cosworth, less, probably. 203, wasn't it? 205 with the, with the, uh, you know, I mean, it's all like notional, that, yeah. right? Is it, I, thought, it? I thought they but were I'm just saying, I can't remember. I'm just saying that you mark two Jag, bloody fast car. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been collecting scratch-built slot cars. So, as you know, my son has scale extric. Obviously, you have the Sierra Cosworths and the Capris and the Camaros and the Mustangs and the Formula One, all of that. As the Group C cars, that's what we've been doing recently. But um, 
and I, I and I think I've talked on the pod before about the difference between the motor that sits in line in the chassis and like has a drive shaft to the rear axle, or the ones where the motor sits right on the rear axle and the pinion drives a gear which is right by one of the rear wheels. If that makes sense, there's those ones where. So if you think of it, the difference is the axle with all the weights at the back, so it compromises the handling. But the direct drive, there's less of a power loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's uh, um, the, the preferred position for racing is, the, is surprisingly a compromise between the two, an angle. And they literally call them angle winders. And then you have to have, a, have like a special back axle that has a pinion gear, that, that, that has a gear that's cut in a certain way. Um, it, well, so are these scratch built models, like these are home built. This is where somebody's like got a motor, soldered together some wire, um, you know, and then put the leads on and, and uh, you know, and has created the thing absolutely uh, from from nothing. Um, and then you can do Lexan bodies and you can buy stickers to do the, the proper the proper livery. Um, I've really enjoyed this sort of new element of the hobby. Mm-hmm. It's almost irrelevant that, that most of them don't work. Some of them do work, but most of them don't work. And and frustratingly, one of the ones I bought, it, the motor doesn't seem to work, but the chassis of the car is the housing of the motor, if that makes sense. The motor's not separate. The rotor was mounted in... Now, there was one casting, which is mostly the body, the chassis of the car, but at the back has a shape which allows you to hold the motor and a pair of magnets to create the motor. It, it's really a, a, a fascinating design that, of course, I can't hope to fix. Marvellous. All right, Mark. I appreciate your time. Groovy. All right, we'll take it easy, buddy. You too. Ciao, ciao.